Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A bicycle ridden by the target of a massive manhunt. He probably knew his end was coming. An intrepid monkey on a quest to make space history. These scientists are really on the edge of their seat. And a liquor linked to hallucinations and violence. It was the evil drink that just sparked this insanity. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions. Unearthing wondrous treasures from the past. Extraordinary artifacts and bizarre relics. Each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. St. Louis, Missouri. Home of America's tallest man-made monument, the Gateway Arch. It stands as a tribute to the city that launched Lewis and Clark's expedition into the uncharted west. And right in the center of town is the Missouri History Museum, which preserves some of the state's smaller but no less significant treasures. And tucked away in the museum's library is a rather average-looking group of books. There are 29 bound volumes, each measuring 8.5 by 11, approximately an inch thick, containing two to 300 pages of hand-typed transcripts. According to the director of Library and Collections, Christopher Gordon, these typewritten tomes tell a haunting tale of burning ambition from beyond the grave. What are these books? And who authored the words within? July 1913, St. Louis, Missouri. Housewife Pearl Curran is mourning the loss of her recently deceased father when her friend Emily Hutchins pays a visit. In hopes of connecting her friend with the spirit of her father, Hutchins has brought with her a talking board, which according to author Brandon Hodge, is a popular game of the times. Beginning with the 1890s, talking boards become sort of a parlor entertainment, one of America's first fads. And they are used by those who believe to communicate with the dead. So the two women put their hands on the wooden pointer known as a planchette. 
Suddenly, Pearl feels a tug on her hands as they follow a force that seems to be moving the pointer on its own. It appears that someone or something is trying to deliver a message. But it's not Pearl's father. And it spells out the phrase, many moons ago I lived. Again I come, Patience Worth is my name. The women watch in shock as the phantom speaker carries on. Patience Worth claims she's a 17th century English woman who comes to America and gets killed by Indians in a raid in Nantucket. Then, according to Pearl, what the stranger says next sends shivers down her spine. The spirit has literary ambitions and wants to channel her writings through Pearl. She was searching for someone to actually express herself and express her literary desires. Pearl accepts, and soon the high school dropout reads aloud complex and colorful descriptions of a seemingly bygone era. Her husband dutifully transcribes page after page, which are later typed into the manuscripts now on display at the Missouri History Museum. Soon, Pearl draws a startling conclusion. Patience is writing poetry. When people find out that these communications are taking place, word spreads very quickly, and before you know it, neighbors are showing up at the house, and she begins hosting these bi-weekly communication sessions with Patience Worth. A prominent St. Louis journalist named Casper Joost shows up to one of these sessions and is stunned by the flowery wordcraft by Patience Worth. And so he begins to write stories about it, further fanning the flames of, of her popularity. Yost prints some of Patience's poems, and soon the literary world begins to take notice. Her poems become published. Five of them are listed the best in the nation for that year. And soon the emerging literary darling known as Patience Worth publishes her first novel, a story set in biblical times entitled A Sorry Tale. A Sorry Tale gets rave reviews. It's called by the New York Times a literary feat crafted by a master hand. Pearl Curran literally overnight goes from this sort of mousy, uneducated housewife to a, a, just a literary phenomenon. But not everyone is convinced. Is Pearl truly communicating with the spirit of patient's worth? Or is there something more sinister going on? She had many people who were convinced it was a fake, that Pearl Curran was simply using patient's worth to build her own celebrity or, or to try to make money. But an examination of Pearl's past reveals she may not be capable of perpetrating an elaborate literary hoax. Pearl Curran dropped out of school at a very young age. She had a very limited education and would have had no knowledge of the advanced literature that Patience Worth seemed to channel through her. Others question her mental stability. A number of people began to wonder whether Pearl Curran actually suffered from multiple personality disorder. Yet friends notice when she channels Patience, Pearl's personality remains the same. While her detractors persist, others, like journalist Casper Joost, are convinced that Pearl is telling the truth and that Patience once existed. 
He felt if he could confirm the truth of her identity, then he could prove life after death. So he actually travels across the Atlantic into England into the area where Patience Worth claims she's from. Before she immigrated to America, Patience Worth alleges to have lived in Dorset, England, a place she describes in her writings. But there's no evidence in the public record that she existed. But as Yost digs further, he comes upon some seemingly familiar scenes. Yost was able to find a church and the ruins of a monastery that was similar to what Patience had described. The locations are places Pearl Curran has never visited, and their discovery leaves Yost and others convinced that Pearl is telling the truth and that the spirit of Patience Worth is real. Over time, Patience's literary star fades, but the conversations between housewife and spirit allegedly continue until Pearl's death in 1937. While we may never know the true identity of the author known as Patience Worth, these 29 volumes at the Missouri History Museum testify to the remarkable tale of a Midwestern housewife who many believe had an extraordinary connection with a scribe from beyond the grave. Washington, D.C. Named after America's first president, this city boasts the world's tallest stone structure, the Washington Monument. And just blocks away is an institution that heralds a different type of towering achievement, the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. Its jaw-dropping collection of historic air and spacecraft is the largest in the world. People look forward to seeing the 1903 Wright Flyer, Charles Lindbergh's airplane, the Spirit of St. Louis, and Columbia, the command module in Apollo 11. But according to museum curator Margaret Whiteycamp, tucked amongst the enormous rockets and jetliners sits a comparatively small and odd contraption. This metal object that holds a furry occupant weighs about 250 pounds. This strange-looking cradle and primate played a critical role in a death-defying journey to the final frontier. It was, in fact, a very important milestone in the Cold War and in the beginnings of the space race. How did this monkey change the future of space travel forever? Spring 1959, Cape Canaveral, Florida. In a quest for technological superiority, the United States and the Soviet Union are engaged in a fierce battle to unlock the mysteries of space. Scientists in both the Soviet Union and the United States are really trying to figure out what would it take to put a living thing into space and bring it back safely. One year earlier, the Soviets launched the first mammal into space, a dog named Laika. But the mission ended in failure when the dog died. But the U.S. believes they've achieved the technological advancements to launch and return an animal unscathed. And they think they've identified the ideal specimens. Monkeys. The ideas of putting monkeys into space had been one that the United States had been working with uh, both the Navy and the Army for some time. Scientists determine that their similarity to humans will provide valuable insight into man's prospects in space. Resolved to find the best primate for the job, 
they acquire eight monkeys and train them for flight. They looked at the health of the animals, but they also needed to know that the living specimen would be able to function. And so these monkeys had actually been trained to various tasks. After months of evaluation, a female monkey emerges from the troop. Abel, a name taken from the Naval Phonetic Alphabet. Miss Abel demonstrated that she would be able to be calm during flight and that she would be able to do what was asked of her. Scientists decide to send a companion with Abel, a smaller squirrel monkey named Baker. Two different kinds of monkeys gave them two different kinds of feedback and data. Various sensors attached to the duo will allow scientists to monitor their activity during the flight. After months of training, it is determined the space monkeys are ready to launch. May 28th, Ms. Abel and Ms. Baker sit securely in the nose cone of a 60-foot-tall Jupiter missile when the countdown begins. These scientists are really on the edge of their seat and watching these sensors and hoping that this mission will go well. 150,000 pounds of thrust send teeth-chattering vibrations through the rocket. It would have been a tremendous jolt for the animals inside the nose cone. As the missile ascends, mission control begins to worry. The scientists can see that Abel is struggling with the physical pressures of the G-forces. But once the rocket reaches space, the gravitational pull diminishes. Abel's vital signs level out and mission control breathes a sigh of relief. Once it peaks at more than 300 miles above the Earth, the flight crew anxiously awaits the most dangerous part of the mission. The descent. Then the nose cone breaks away from the rocket and hurtles towards Earth. Will Abel and Baker make it home alive? It's 1959. In their quest to conquer space, scientists at NASA launch a rocket containing two monkeys named Abel and Baker, more than 300 miles above the Earth. NASA hopes the intrepid pair will become the first mammals to successfully return from space. So will Abel and Baker make it back alive? The animals were descending at 10,000 miles an hour and experiencing 30 or 40 G's, which is the force of gravity 30 or 40 times. Finally, the rocket module splashes down in the Atlantic. And the USS Kiowa rushes to retrieve it as mission control holds its breath. When the USS Kiowa arrived to fish this capsule out of the ocean, they were really waiting to see whether this had been successful. They hoisted on board to safety and with great anticipation, pop the hatch. Inside, they find both monkeys alive and thriving. They biologically were able to withstand all of the forces that they had experienced, and that gave them an important bit of information going forward to create a spacecraft that would actually be safe enough for a human being to not only fly in, but function in. The space monkeys become instant celebrities. Abel and Baker were getting 100 to 150 letters a day from school children and well-wishers and animal lovers. The monkey's successful voyage paves the way for man's exploration of the moon. And today, Abel's taxidermied body is on view at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. 
a tribute to her pioneering contribution to the exploration of space. New Orleans, Louisiana. First settled by French explorers and fur trappers in the 1690s, today the Big Easy trades on its reputation as a city that celebrates. And one institution here highlights New Orleans and the nation's romance with alcohol, the Museum of the American Cocktail. On display here are Art Deco cocktail shakers, vintage bottles of whiskey, and a gallery of celebrated barmen. But according to chemist T.A. Bro, there is one seemingly nondescript item in this collection that tells one of the most salacious chapters in cocktail history. It's made of dark glass. It stands about a foot tall, and it represents something that was deemed both beautiful and sinister. This bottle and its contents tell a mind-bending tale of delirium, hysteria, and violence. So what is the spirit, and what mysterious power does it possess? August 28, 1905, Comigny, Switzerland. Police are called to a local farmhouse where they make a bizarre discovery. Police arrived at the residence of one Jean Lanfray and found him passed out in his barn, bleeding from a self-inflicted gunshot to the face. And soon, they discover that Lanfray is not the only casualty of this tragic event. Also at the residence, they found his pregnant wife and two daughters, all murdered, all shot. When he wakes from his slumber, Lanfray is arrested for the murder of his family. Baffled by the senseless crime, police begin to piece together the farmer's actions on that fateful day. According to neighbors, after a morning of work in the fields, the farmer took a leisurely lunch where he consumed two glasses of a French liquor called absinthe. Then he returned home, where he was greeted by his wife. Jean Lanfray apparently got into an argument with his wife, and in response, he pointed a shotgun at her and pulled the trigger. Once he came to his senses, uh, he was stricken with grief, and so he evidently attempted to take his own life. When word of the perplexing crime spreads, many outraged townsfolk are convinced they know the true motivation behind Lanfray's brutal acts, absinthe. Absinthe was originally a medicine that was distilled from an infusion of medicinal plants and wine alcohol. The powerful green drink became popular in France after a series of poor grape crops devastated wine production. It gained notoriety for its purportedly unusual side effects. Absinthe was alleged to cause hallucinations in chronic absinthe drinkers. And in the wake of the brutal murder, many are convinced absinthe-induced hallucinations were the real force behind Lanfray's violent actions. Lanfray's legal counsel agreed that absinthe was to blame. It was the evil drink that just sparked this episode of insanity. Despite this defense, Lanfray is ultimately found guilty of the crime. In the aftermath of the absinthe-soaked case, temperance advocates in Europe paint absinthe as a dangerous and destabilizing force. In 1908, 
the Swiss government outlaws the drink. And in the years that follow, absinthe is outlawed throughout Europe and America. Absinthe was basically wiped from the planet in the early 20th century because, you see, absinthe is a poison. But does this simple green spirit really induce violent fits of rage? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. New Orleans, Louisiana. For nearly 85 years, the liquor absinthe has been banned in the United States. Known as the Green Fairy, the drink is said to have hallucinatory effects and send some drinkers into fits of violent rage. But what's the real story behind the enigmatic elixir known as absinthe? For years, chemist and New Orleans resident T.A. Bro has been fascinated by tales of absinthe's hallucinatory effects. And in 2000, he stumbles upon a gold mine. I was fortunate enough to have found in full unopened bottles representing the finest absence of the 19th century that were unearthed in old wine cellars in the European continent. On display at the Museum of the American Cocktail, this is the same type of absinthe believed to have instigated acts of extreme violence. This bottle would have been exactly what Jean Lanfray would have been imbibing on that fateful day in 1905. Armed with pristine samples, Bro and others set out to analyze the infamous liquid and determine if it is as deadly as claimed. Scientists begin by trying to isolate the active ingredient believed to give absinthe its hallucinatory properties, a naturally occurring and toxic compound called thujone. And after months of study, Bro and his team draw a stunning conclusion. While it had been believed all along that absinthe was laden with thujone and that this was hallucinogenic and potentially poisonous, 
found that just wasn't true, not at all. In fact, many vintage absinths contained just a, a tiny trace. And in 2007, T.A. Bro manages to convince government regulators that absinthe is safe to consume. The Taxation and Trade Bureau agreed that there was no basis for the 95-year ban on absinthe in the United States. So once again, we can enjoy absinthe. But if absinthe doesn't have hallucinatory properties, what drove the murderous actions of farmer Jean Lamfray? Little reported details reveal that absinthe wasn't the only drink Lamfray consumed that fateful day. He consumed about nine bottles of wine. We can't just blame it all on the two glasses of absinthe. That was just a convenient scapegoat. Bro also believes that the movement to ban absinthe was stoked by a determined competitor, winemakers. The wine industry found themselves at odds with the green drink that had become so popular. The wine industry painted absinthe as a source of societal ills. And today, this bottle of vintage absinthe at the Museum of the American Cocktail stands as a reminder of the legend and the myth of the powerful spirit that has long captured the imagination of the world. One of the most populous cities in the nation, Houston, Texas, is a booming center of America's oil and gas industry. It is also home to one of the country's most unusual institutions, the National Museum of Funeral History. Here, visitors can view authentic relics from historic funerals, explore the grieving rituals of ancient civilizations, and discover the rich heritage of those whose job it is to care for the dead. But there is one artifact here in this mournful collection that tells the most captivating tale of all. It's a 1973 Mercedes. It's 18 feet long. It's got silver body with blacked out windows at the back. It's a top of the line hearse. And according to author James Spada, it took center stage at the funeral of one of the most glamorous and celebrated women in history. She enchanted the world with her refinement and her elegance. And this hearse will always be a a cherished artifact. What world-famous celebrity did this hearse bear? And what were the mysterious circumstances of her death? September 13, 1982, Monaco. This small municipality on the Mediterranean Sea has come to adore its royal princess, the former Hollywood superstar Grace Kelly, who 26 years earlier abandoned her film career to marry Prince Rainier III. Now, Princess Grace is a civic-minded mother of three children, including a beautiful teenage daughter named Stephanie. But Grace Kelly's enchanted existence is about to take a shocking and dramatic turn. About 10 in the morning, uh, Grace and Stephanie left Rockagel, which was the family's vacation home. In a small sports car, Grace and Stephanie set off for Monaco along a steep mountain road high above the Mediterranean Sea. It's extremely treacherous. It's got a lot of hairpin turns. Now, a lorry driver who was behind her testified that everything was fine. But then, as the truck driver looks on, Grace's car does something truly bizarre. And then he watched in horror as the car just continually sped up without any attempt to brake and went straight off the cliff. The car careens down the steep hillside, 
and comes to rest in a wooded field. Neighbors heard the crash and they came out and they saw Stephanie coming out of the driver's side of the car and she was crying, you know, please help my mother, please help my mother. To those on the scene, it appears that Princess Grace's condition is dire. Grace was uh, in the car with her head toward the back seat and her feet toward the front seat and it was clear that she was very, very badly injured. An ambulance rushes the princess to a local hospital. And the next day, the people of Monaco and the world receive devastating news. Princess Grace has died. Four days later, on September 18th, the nation mourns as Grace's body is carried through the popular district of Monte Carlo in this black and silver hearse, now on display at the National Museum of Funeral History. Grace's funeral was perfect for a movie star or a princess, and Grace was both. People lined the streets. They wanted to say goodbye to Grace. In the wake of Grace's passing, the public struggles to make sense of the tragic event. Palace officials blame the accident on faulty brakes in the automobile. But soon, whispers begin to emerge that this was no accident. Some believe Grace was a casualty in a battle with the criminal underworld. The Monaco Mafia was trying to make inroads into the Monte Carlo Casino, and Grace was fighting them. And so the theory arose that they had tampered with her brakes in some way to remove her from the picture. Was Grace Kelly murdered? Monaco, 1982. When Princess Grace dies in a terrible car accident on a steep mountain road, her adopted homeland struggles to come to grips with a sudden tragedy. And it's not long before rumors begin to swirl around the mysterious circumstances of her death. So what was the true cause of Grace Kelly's demise? In their investigation, police send parts of the car to the manufacturer, British Leyland. And after a thorough examination, they determine that the automobile had not been tampered with and that the brakes are in perfect working order. Soon, reports from the scene begin to suggest an entirely different reason for the crash. That Grace's teenage daughter, Stephanie, had been behind the wheel that fateful day. The reasons that the reports arose that Stephanie was driving the car was that she was seen getting out of the driver's side of the car after the crash. Others suggest that the cause of the crash was a bitter dispute between mother and daughter. There were rumors in the tabloids that Grace and Stephanie were having a terrible fight in the car over the fact that Stephanie wanted to marry her much older boyfriend. But perhaps the most credible explanation emerges from the physicians who examined Grace when she arrived at the hospital. After conducting a CAT scan on the ailing princess, they reached a startling conclusion. And the results of the CAT scan were very interesting. They determined that Grace had suffered a stroke, which caused her to lose control of the car, to not brake, to not turn the wheel. But many question whether a healthy Grace could have truly suffered from a stroke, while some are still not convinced that she was, in fact, the car's driver. Finally, on the 20th anniversary of Grace's death, her daughter Stephanie breaks her silence. In 2002... She gave a remarkably frank interview to a Paris newspaper. She adamantly denied that she'd been driving the car. She said that she had desperately tried to stop the car, that she had pulled up the emergency brake. She was asked if they had been fighting, and she said, that's not something I want to talk about. 
And while the exact events leading up to the crash may never be known, today, this silver hearse at the National Museum of Funeral History in Houston, Texas, stands as a timeless reminder of the celebrated life and mysterious death of a remarkable European princess. The town of Hershey, Pennsylvania, is synonymous with chocolate. But it's also home to a museum that records the not-so-sweet moments in the region's history. The Pennsylvania State Police Museum. Its displays include highway patrol motorcycles, vintage uniforms, and the basic implements of a state lawman's trade. But there is one item in this museum that at first glance conveys a childlike innocence. It's red. It's got some white pinstripes on the front fenders. It's still covered with dirt, probably from the 1960s. According to police historian Thomas Memmi, this beat-up old Schwinn tells a terrifying tale. So who owned this bike? And what role did it play in one of the most chilling criminal cases in Pennsylvania history? 1966, Shade Gap, Pennsylvania. 17-year-old Peggy Ann Bradnick and her brothers are on their way home from school when suddenly a strange-looking man emerges from the woods. And he threatened the children. He cursed at them. Then the man grabs Peggy Ann and drags her into the woods. Her terrified siblings race home and notify the police. The police quickly arrived on scene. They also sent men into the woods. State police, along with concerned members of the community, embark on a desperate manhunt. But there's little trace of the missing teen. The only thing they could find were the school books that belonged to Peggy laying on the ground. Authorities interview Peggy's terrified siblings, who are only able to offer a vague description of the man who abducted her. The kids were so distraught and scared, they were unable to get a description, but claimed it was the mountain man. The mountain man is a notorious fugitive, thought to live in the woods of Shade Gap. There was a man who had committed a series of violent crimes, shootings. He was investigated by the police. The people in the entire area were aware of this man. But the identity of this elusive figure is unknown. With the investigation at a standstill, officers decide to speak with the only other person known to live in the woods, an eccentric known as Bicycle Pete. His real name is Bill Hollenbaugh, and he has gained local notoriety for riding a red bicycle. That was his main mode of transportation. He used that to get around town. He used it to go shopping. Most people in town of Shade Gap recognized him by that bicycle. An FBI agent named Terry Anderson hikes through the woods to Bicycle Pete's remote cabin. But as he approaches the structure, things go terribly wrong. All of a sudden, there's a blast of a shotgun. Terry Anderson drops to the ground and dies from the gunshot wound. His stunned colleagues catch a fleeting glimpse of the man running through the trees with someone who appears to be Peggy Ann Bradnick. The pair disappears. But now investigators finally know the identity of the man they are hunting. The mountain man who committed all these crimes in Bicycle Pete, Bill Hollenbaugh, was actually the same man. And with the murder of a federal agent, the investigation takes on a whole new dimension. 
At that time, all hell broke loose. There were approximately a thousand people involved in this search. But it seems that Hollenbaugh's detailed knowledge of the dense wilderness gives him a distinct advantage. Can he be stopped before it's too late? It's 1966 in Shade Gap, Pennsylvania. A teenage girl is abducted at gunpoint by an eccentric local known as Bicycle Pete, triggering one of the largest manhunts in state history. Can the authorities catch up to Bicycle Pete before it's too late? Eight days after Peggy Ann's abduction, with officers combing the wilderness, a sheriff's deputy discovers Hollenbaugh hiding out. But the mountain man makes a break for it, with his captive in tow. Bill did not want to stop. He wanted to keep going. He probably knew his end was coming. The pair flees towards a nearby farm, where a young man named Larry Rubeck is working. Larry Rubeck saw Bill approaching his home, and he had raised his 12-gauge shotgun and fired. And there was a large blast. Bill Hollenbaugh is cut down in his tracks, killed by a shot through the neck. But the bullet came not from the brave young Rubeck, but from a state policeman who had chased the mountain man to the farm. Finally, Peggy Ann is reunited with her family and tells them that she was rescued not a moment too soon. Bill knew that he was trapped. And he said, Peggy, I'm going to be dead. You're going to be dead. Or maybe both of us will be at the end of this. But thanks to the intense efforts of federal investigators and local authorities, Peggy Ann Bradnick survived to tell her story. According to Peggy Ann, Hollenbaugh told her that prior to the abduction, he had been covertly following her around town on his bicycle for months. But Peggy Ann never noticed until it was too late. And today, in the Pennsylvania State Police Museum, this rusted old bike stands as an unlikely reminder of the obsessive actions of one deranged criminal and the schoolgirl who escaped his grasp. Known as the City of Invention, Dayton, Ohio is the birthplace of countless creations. But the city's highest innovative achievement is reserved for the fathers of flight, Orville and Wilbur Wright. And much of the city and the nation's rich aviation heritage is celebrated at the Museum of the United States Air Force. Here, a vast complex of hangars houses the world's largest and oldest military aviation museum. From President Kennedy's Air Force One, to Boxcar, the plane that dropped the bomb on Nagasaki, and an SR-71 Blackbird, one of the fastest planes on the planet. But among these highly heralded crafts is one seemingly innocuous artifact. It's flat. It's about two feet by about three and a half to four feet high. It weighs just a few pounds. It's made out of aluminum. According to museum historian Jeff Underwood, this object holds the secrets of a heart-wrenching tale of honor, suffering, and sacrifice. He starts saying there's somebody's scrawled something, and it's a pencil marks. Then you realize it's dates. It's a chronology of what's happening on a day-by-day basis. What is this scrap of metal? And what harrowing tale do these markings reveal? 
November 10, 1942. It's World War II, and American troops are preparing to launch an offensive against the Japanese in New Guinea, a strategic island foothold in the Pacific. American troops are being moved to the north side of the island for that final push against the Japanese. On this day, a group of Army personnel are hitching a ride on a C-47 transport aircraft called the Flying Dutchman. Among the passengers is a chaplain from Wenatchee, Washington, named Ted Barron. The plane charts the clear blue skies high above the mountainous island, but 30 minutes into the journey, something goes horribly wrong. Air currents rapidly shift, slamming the Flying Dutchman into the mountain face, ripping the aircraft to pieces. The men who survived the initial crash start pulling the others out. Some of the men are already dead. Some are seriously, seriously wounded. Chaplain Ted Barron is among the wounded. In total, seven of his fellow travelers have perished. The survivors have to reassess, where are we? What do we have? What do we do next? Captain Barron and the other soldiers get to work scouring the charred plane for provisions. And they collect what few supplies are available. A little bit of food, a little bit of ammunition still left. After days stranded on the forest floor, the men determine that the chance of being spotted by an American aircraft from the sky is slim. But a collective trek out of the forest seems impossible. There's seven men who basically cannot be moved. They're burned, they're banged up really bad, they have internal injuries. So the decision is made to send the healthiest men out into the unknown in search of help. And the chaplain, Captain Barron, who's also injured and really can't walk out, but he's well enough to take care of the other seven. That group stays with the aircraft. After 32 days of desperately trekking through the rainforest, the men reach civilization, completely spent and uncertain about the fate of the servicemen who stayed behind. Can they rescue Chaplain Ted Barron and the remaining crash survivors before it's too late? It's 1942. After their transport plane crashes in World War II on the remote island of Papua New Guinea, some of the surviving soldiers embark on an arduous trek through the jungle, leaving their injured behind. When they make it back to civilization, there is one question on their minds. Can they save their wounded mates? The haggard soldiers relay the details of the Flying Dutchman's crash and the men who stayed behind. And soon, a U.S. search party sets out to find them. There are still survivors left at the crash site. They really don't know where it's at. They gave them the best information possible. But they're not pilots. They're not navigators. Eventually, after months of searching, the rescuers locate the wreckage of the Flying Dutchman. But they are too late. Chaplain Ted Barron and the other wounded soldiers have died. The search team recover the bodies from the site. But the final chapter of the Flying Dutchman disaster has yet to be uncovered. Until 1961, when an Australian search party looking for one of its downed planes stumbles upon the wreckage of the Flying Dutchman and discovers this rusted metal door, now on display at the Museum of the United States Air Force. On closer inspection, the markings it bears appear to have been written by Chaplain Ted Barron. 
Captain Byrne had kept a day-by-day chronology of what happened to these men. This is pretty unique stuff. Barron documented the injured servicemen's dwindling supplies. Sunday, the 22nd of November, drank last can of tomato juice, last cigarette the next day. Then a couple days later, their rations finally run out. But amidst the arduous circumstances, Barron's makeshift journal radiates hope. The chaplain is keeping his and everyone's spirits void by talking about how they're going to come soon. We've got to just keep our chin up. One person is what keeps all of them going. But over time, Barron recorded the deaths of his companions from starvation. And subsequent entries reveal that soon he too will share their fate. You watch the handwriting as it goes from being very strong and very compact to the very end, he's barely able to write. He's probably the last alive. On the 1st of January, 1943, he's no longer thinking about the future because that's the last entry in his diary. And it is believed that just days later, he died. Eventually, Barron's heartbreaking journal makes its way to the Museum of the United States Air Force, where today it stands as a reminder of a unique tragedy and one man's unfailing optimism in the face of unthinkable hardship. From a sinister spirit to a ghostly scribe, a beloved princess to an intrepid space traveler. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.